Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 3. If you are new with us this morning, we've been walking through the entire letter of James together as a church, which we've been saying each week is more accurately titled, James's Sermon. And like many sermons, James's sermon that we have in letter form here has three big points. How to stay faithful in hard times. What it looks like to act justly and love mercy. And how to walk in wisdom. And these three themes he's recycling in over and over and over again. So last week we learned that the faith that God gives his people, the faith that he gifts us, includes merciful action. It's not like uh, we sort of add works to our faith to please God. Like Gatorade powder to water. No, it's already mixed. God gives us a living faith. And so we don't pursue acts of mercy, like Phil just talked about, in order to be saved. We pursue acts of mercy exactly because we have been saved. We have received God's mercy, and through that mercy, we extend it to others. And so that's James's second broad point. Justice and mercy. And you will return to it again. But today, James is going to pivot to our speech. In one sense, this is a continuation of last week because speaking, if you think about it, is action. Our speech is a primary way that we evidence our faith in Jesus, how we talk. And it's a primary way that we show mercy to others. But in another sense, James, I think, is pivoting towards his third point, which is wisdom. Wisdom is a skill in the art of godly living, and we cannot cultivate this skill in the art of godly living if we don't pay attention to our words. So I'll read the text. I would encourage you to follow along as I read. This is God's Word. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we, will, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame tough. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness or image of God. 
From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So Lord, words are powerful. So would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts which are words that we're keeping to ourselves and processing with you this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you this morning. You are a rock, you are a redeemer. Your word is perfect, and your word will never fade like so many things in our lives do. So speak to us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So more more than 10 years ago, my wife and I checked in to counseling. We had just spent a year, practically about a half a year, practically living in the NICU in Children's Hospital. We were exhausted in what we wanted and with the advice of others was fresh, experienced set of eyes on our marriage and on our family. And so we started showing up and after each appointment our counselor would pray with us, our favorite part, and give us homework. And I know I've shared this with you before, so I apologize. But it's worth repeating. Her homework for us was never, ever super spiritual homework. Her homework for us was always super earthy and oftentimes super obvious. Things like, get more hours of sleep this week. And, you know, wake up before your kids do. And she was insistent on one thing. A consistent family meal. And many of you know this, but at the time, I thought that was ridiculous advice. We're driving all this way for this, but the older that I get, the, the, the more I see that my counselor was really onto something. You could say she was a wise counselor. Why? Because she was focusing our scattered and limited attention to one small thing that has a large impact. Family meals are a perfect example of this. One small thing that has a giant impact. They're what author Charles Duhigg calls a keystone habit. A keystone, I know there's architects in the room. A keystone is that stone that locks in all the other stones in an archway. It's that tippy-top stone that locks together so many other things. And so a keystone habit is just one small thing habit or action that seems to lock in a hundred other benefits. So listen to what he says about the family meal. I'm quoting, studies have documented that families who habitually eat dinner together seem to raise children with better homework skills, higher grades, greater emotional control, and more confidence, etc., 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 etc. Our counselor saw that we had very little bandwidth in our life at that moment. So she focused our bandwidth on something small but mighty. Small but great. And that's just a family meal. She also focused on other keystones, like rest. And you could read the next book. And on that, there's even more keystones. But this morning, I want to focus on what could be called the keystone of all keystones. The tongue. Speech. What James calls the tongue, which is, of course, poetic language for our speech. I mean, can you think of anything so small as our tongue and yet 
anything with such great power. I'm willing to bet we, that you remember words that have wounded you, even if it's decades ago. It sounds in your mind and in your heart as if they are being spoken right now. And I'm also willing to bet that you have words that you can remember as if they're being spoken right now that were profoundly healing to you. Or a word that brought breakthrough to you. That's how powerful words are. There's nothing more powerful than words. But like family meals, for something so powerful, we don't really give words our attention, do we? Maybe we know in theory the power of words, but we don't give our words the attention that they deserve and really demand. I mean, did you know that, I mean, many of you do know this, that half of all car wrecks happen within a 10-mile radius of home? No, that's a 5-mile radius. 70% of all wrecks happen within a 10-mile radius of home. Why? Because it's the route we know. It's the route we know. And so we stop paying attention. In the mountain climbing community, they always say that it's the descent that's the most dangerous part. The ascent and the summit is not where all the injuries happen. It's the descent. Why? It's the base camp. Why? Because we stop paying attention. And that's where the accidents happen. And the same could be said of our words. We're so comfortable speaking. We're so comfortable with our words. We're so comfortable and, and just sort of used to even the words of others in our life that we stop paying attention. But this would be like driving 75 miles per hour on the highway and texting at the same time. It's a very dangerous thing to not pay attention while speaking. Words are powerful and consequential, but we've stopped paying attention. And based off what we just read from James this morning, it seems that there were folks in James's scattered congregation who did the same. They were, apparently, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 4, they were hurting each other with their words. And so James wants, in verse 5 of the section we just read, to remind them that the tongue, though small, boasts great things. That's what he says exactly in verse 5. The tongue, though small, boasts great things. On the one hand, its greatness accomplishes or can accomplish much good. And on the other hand, its greatness can also accomplish much that is evil and wrong and harmful. But in both cases, the tongue boasts great things. It is, according to James, the keystone of all keystones. And so we would be wise to give our limited attention to our tongue in our life and in our church. And James will do this in our passage in two ways. By drawing our attention to the power of words. And number two, by drawing our attention to the powerlessness of the speaker. Now that sounds a little bit contradictory, but let's look at it together and see what God has for us. So first, James wants us to respect the power of speech. And that's why he starts with a warning in verse 1. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this warning this way. Don't rush to become a teacher. Why? Why, why not rush? Because words are powerful. That's why. 
especially in James's day when only 10% of society could read. One in 10 people could read. And so in those days, a fast track to power was teaching. Was teaching. I'm going to turn my mic off because all I'm hearing is feedback. That's going to help, That's going to help all of us. See, the Pharisees in Jesus' day was powerful. Why were they powerful? Because they were teachers. And teachers in those days were like celebrities. They had the best seats. You know, the most followers. Before there was social media, they had the most followers. In our day, they would be influencers. And that was in part because they were teachers in an illiterate society. Which meant that they could abuse their teaching power. Which Jesus fiercely rebukes in the Gospels. And so James is saying with Jesus, his brother, don't rush to be a teacher. Because rushing reveals maybe an eagerness for power. And because of a teacher's power, James reminds them that their words will be judged with greater strictness. Why? Because their words has more influence. And so James would say, slow down. If you're called to teach, treat that calling with the caution and the care that it requires. It's like a pilot who flies commercial airlines. We have some neighbors who do that. And I think often about their job. A pilot has a scarce but powerful skill set. And I often wonder what it feels like for them to be standing outside their cockpit as they greet people who are coming onto the airplane. I wonder if that's a sobering moment for them. What I'm about to do is take them into the air. That's crazy. I have a skill set, and they're entrusting me to bring them into the air. That's insane. And I think James is essentially saying to all teachers, that's kind of what you're doing too with your words. Nobody should rush into this job without a proper respect and humility at what it conveys. So right away, James is treating the tongue almost like the ring in the Lord of the Rings or a wand in Harry Potter. It has great power and for good or for ill. And rushing towards a sort of word-centered profession probably indicates a healthy preoccupation with power and celebrity because words are powerful. And James is going to illustrate this power of the tongue by talking about its three capacities. First, the capacity to harness. Second, the capacity to heal. And third, the capacity to harm. And so first, James wants us to appreciate the tongue's capacity to harness. Look at verses 2 and 4 again with me. For we all stumble in many ways. Amen? And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. 
If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and they're also driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And so James is comparing the tongue to two small things, a bit, which goes in the horse's mouth, and the rudder. And both of these things have one thing in common. They are small, but have a capacity, a very powerful capacity to harness very wild things. These two things direct and guide very wild things. And James wants us to see that the tongue is in a way a keystone of all keystones. James is essentially saying, if you can control your tongue, you can control anything. Just look at the ship in a storm for proof. So it's capacity to harness. But the second thing he wants us to appreciate is the tongue's capacity to heal. So in both cases, the, the, the bit and the rudder are doing good things, beneficial things. You know, we're not a seafaring culture, so the analogy might be lost on us. So I'll draw your attention back to the airplane. Because we do oftentimes fly in airplanes where no people who do. Think back to the last time you were in turbulence. In an airplane, not fun. At all. Especially if you have a window seat. But imagine, again, like you're on that plane and you're, you're doing like the bad turbulence. Not the sort of bumpy kind, but like the dropping... What feels like, you know, the beast at King's Island. <laughs> you look out the window and you see a little flappy thing. I don't know what the, anybody know what the flappy thing is called? <laughs> the rudder, we'll say. It's the airplane rudder. And you're like, praise God for that flappy thing. Because that is keeping the plane in the air. It's keeping us steady as we can be. Words, when wielded well, can keep the plane in the air when we're grabbing oxygen masks. It has a capacity to heal. So Proverbs says this over and over again. He, uh, the Proverbs call words, the words that we speak, a fountain of life or even honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bodies. That's the power or the capacity of words to heal in our life. Which tells you, by the way, as a side point, that power in and of itself is not inherently bad. Like all creations of God, power can be directed toward good or bad. When power is wielded to lift up the powerless, power is redeemed. Especially when the power of words, think about it are used to lift up the voiceless. The power of words are redeemed. That's merciful speech. The words have the capacity to heal. Third, though, they have a capacity to harm. You know, sadly, the words that we can recall oftentimes are powerful, but in a bad way. There are things people said to us that we can't shake. Look again at verses 5 through 6. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. 
and set on fire by hell. And then verse 9, if you jump down, says, With our tongue, we bless the Lord and Father, like we're doing now at church. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, which we are going to do in our car in the traffic on the way home. <laughs> or at least we're tempted to do. And James says, my brothers, these things ought not be so. And so this section of scripture barely needs any commentary, I think. We know exactly what James is talking about. Words are profoundly powerful, and that means they are often, in this fallen world, profoundly harmful. They've been wielded against us in harmful ways, and we have wielded them against others in harmful ways. And James says it this way, the tongue sparks and spreads fire. So that's verses 5 and 6. Something so small as the tongue can be like a spark that, that sets on fire uh, a forest that will then spread, as James says, into our whole life. It's like the forest fires in California. It's like a little, a little spark, a cigarette thrown off to the side can start on fire our entire life. And this tongue, therefore, can stain all of life, James says. He mixes metaphors a little bit, and he says that harmful words have a way of staining us, like grass stains on our jeans. They're hard to take off, or they even shape us. The harmful words that we speak and think often shape us into their own image. And then James says our tongue smells like smoke. It smells like hell. He tells us in verse 6, if you take a look, where this fire-setting tongue gets its fuel, the fires of hell itself. So the word here is Gehenna, not Gehenna, Gehenna. This was a valley next to Jerusalem that was used in James' day and in Jesus' day as a trash dump. And so they would burn the trash continuously. And so Jesus used this trash dump burning valley of Gehenna to describe hell. And James says that when our harmful words set fire, they are getting their fuel from hell itself. It is hellish to use our words to win. Proverbs says a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Proverbs says, quote, that rash words are like sword thrusts. And we see an example of it in verse 9, how we bless God at church, we bless God in our prayer life. But then we, you know, log on to social media and say what we say there. Or cheer on the people who do. Or in the quiet of our cars. Or even the quiet of our quiet speech in our brain. Curse. Image bears of God. And this is hellish because image bearers are imaging God and they have inherent dignity. Every human being, every fallen human being, James is saying, has inherent dignity. As it's been said, we don't give a person dignity. We acknowledge it. Because they're made in God's image. And, and the logic here with James is when you curse somebody, it's as if you're cursing God himself. Which is hellish. That's the power of words. For James. 
James wants us, I think, just to simply behold their power, to acknowledge it. It's like the first lesson um, in cooking, okay? I have this giant culinary book on my shelf called La Technique by Jacques Pepin. He sometimes is on TV. It's a doorstop of a book where Pepin teaches you French culinary techniques, but the first section is all about one thing. Knife skills. Respect the knife. Phil uses a lot, y'all, so I'll say. Respect the knife, y'all. It is sharp, acknowledge its power. And honestly, one of the most amazing things, I, I told you about my love of watching cooking shows earlier uh, in the month. One of my favorite things to do is to watch somebody cook who is a really good with culinary knife skills. It's a beautiful thing to behold. When you see someone slice an onion with precision and grace and safety, it is a beautiful thing to behold. And by the way, read Robert Cavan's book, Supper of the Lamb. He has an entire chapter on slicing an onion. And it's like three parts theological lesson and one part culinary lesson. And I encourage that chapter. I, I, I encourage you to read that chapter. Here's the thing, though. When you see someone flinging that chef's knife around haphazardly, what do you do? You cringe. Why? Because the chef's knife demands respect. It can be a weapon or a means to something delicious and beautiful. And nourishing. And that's the same with our words. And that is James' first point. Respect the power of words. Acknowledge the power of words. There's actually all kinds of amazing research being done about the power of words these days. As I like to say, science is catching up with Scripture at this point. Lisa Feldman Barrett is a neuroscientist at Northwestern, and she asks this question, quote, Why do you feel delight when someone gives you a compliment? Why do you feel stung when someone insults you? She goes on, neuroscientists ask the same questions and are now starting to craft some surprising answers. She goes on to say in this article that the part of our brain that processes words, like so the part of your brain that is like processing what I'm saying to you right now, the part, like if we're all getting brain scanned right now as I'm talking, the part that's lighting up in your brain also controls major organ systems, hormones, your immune system, the part of your brain that enables you to understand and comprehend words is the same part that guides your heart rate, adjusts glucose in your bloodstream, controls the chemicals that support your immune system. And she says, quote, when people talk about the power of words, it's not a metaphor. It's in your brain wiring. Words are powerful. They're powerful. They shape us. Both the words we say and the words we receive. They, they literally shape us. It's not a metaphor. God designed, God designed the world. I mean, He spoke the world into existence. Is that any surprise then that words would be powerful in our life? 
And that's what James wants us to do. He wants us to simply look at words like we look at a chef's knife. It's powerful. For good and for ill. So respect it. Which brings us really to the second main point of James. The powerlessness of the speaker. The powerlessness of the speaker. I'll just read how James puts it in verse 2. For we, are all, we all stumble in many ways, James says. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So on the one hand, James wants us to tame our tongue. And a perfect person would not sin in their speech. But would have complete verbal self-control and therefore self-self-control. As the keystone of all keystones. But then on the other hand, James says, we all stumble in many ways, including himself with that word we. And then in verse 7 and 8, he says, you know, every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed. Some of you have dogs who want to confront James on this point, and that's, that's up to you. Uh, you're like, my dog can't be tamed. But verse 8 says, no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And that word there for restless, that restless word, is actually that use of the rocking sort of crashing waves earlier in James's sermon. And it could be used of an animal that's about to sort of pounce in wildness or even an agitated snake. And I want you to hang on to that image. James is comparing the human tongue to an agitated snake. You ever seen one of those before? And that's the image James gives us for the tongue. It's like a deadly snake ready to pounce. And later, James implies in the text itself that our tongue is forked like, like a snake. It flows fresh one moment, and it flows brackish water the next. So not only is it impossible to tame like a wild snake that's been agitated, but it also is forked. And it kind of speaks out of both sides of the mouth. And this is confusing at first. As recipients of James' sermon, we're like, you know, discouraged and maybe defeated. It seems like James is encouraging us to control our tongue. And then he like pulls the rug out from under us and says, oh, by the way, nobody can control the tongue. So, so what? Well, James knows what he's doing. James is a gospel preacher. Don't let anyone tell you differently. James wants you to fall into the mercy and grace and power of Jesus. See, James doesn't say nobody can tame the tongue. He says in verse 8, take a look, no mere human being can tame the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue. James is saying, yes, you are unable to tame your tongue. But God can. How? He gives us a new tongue. He tames our tongue by giving us a new tongue. And that's the takeaway from the river and the fountain imagery of verses 8 through 12. 
James is essentially repeating the teachings of Jesus. Our words are connected to our heart. Like water is connected to a spring. Which means that if we get a new heart, we also get a new tongue. A new heart means a new tongue. I mean, James, you get the sense as you read James in this passage that the heart and the tongue are almost the same thing. And as scholar Alec Monier points this out, we often reduce words to just what we say out loud. But he's like, words are everywhere. They're in our brain all the time. Even word pictures so orient our life, our self-talk. And so it's an amazing insight into how God shaped humanity to understand that we can say truthfully that as goes the heart, so goes the tongue. Jesus says, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, it's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. Why? Because what's coming out of your mouth is connected to your heart. It's almost like your heart, you're vomiting your heart out. That's gross. Sorry for that image. But that's true. They're so deeply connected. And so hear me and believe me. If your trust is in Jesus and not in yourself, then you have a new heart within you. That's called regeneration. That's called the gift of a new heart. I want to say it again. If your trust is in Jesus and not in yourself, you have a new heart within you. Regeneration. And if you have a new heart, hear this also and believe it. You have a new tongue. And so yes, the old you is powerless to tame the old tongue. The serpent tongue. But that tongue was crucified on the cross. Like Adam in the Garden of Eden, we fail to tame, we fail to tame the lying serpent. But the second Adam, Jesus, succeeded where we failed so that on the cross, the second Adam stamped out the lying serpent and crushed its head, and with it, our deceitful tongue. It has no power over you. It's been stamped out the cross of Jesus. You have a new tongue. You have a new tongue. In place of the serpent tongue, we have a life-giving tongue. In place of the tongue that is full of destructive fire, we are given a tongue with divine fire. Listen carefully to these words of Alec Monier. He says, quote, On the day of Pentecost, a different fire from that which ascends from hell descended from heaven. To kindle new powers in a new speech, to the human tongue. He's speaking of Pentecost. If we must say, he goes on, that the outworking of sin first appeared in the abuse of speech, which just look at the garden for that. If the outworking of sin first appeared in the abuse of speech, we must also say that the first act in the new creation was a removal of the power of speech, the renewal of the power of speech, a tongue intelligibly declaring the wonderful works of God, which is Pentecost. 
tongues of fire. But that fire doesn't destroy. It's new creation. It's new creation. I mean, over and over again in the scriptures, the pastors in the scriptures are all saying to their people, you are a new creation. You are in Christ. Have we ever thought about our tongue in the same way? You have a resurrection tongue. You have a resurrection tongue. It's on fire with the Holy Spirit of God. And you can bless with it. And you can speak truth with it. And healing. You don't have to set things on fire and destroy with it. It's not in control of you. The old tongue was stamped out. Along with the serpent on the cross. And you can declare wonderful things of God. You can worship with your tongue. Yeah, we can't tame our tongue, but God can. It's easy for Him. It's easy for Him. You know, James is like, it's impossible for us to do it. For humans to do it. It's easy for God to do it. You know, this is what all the dog training books all have in common. By the way, I've read a lot of them since we got a dog. They all say this. Training a dog is easy. Of course, they're trainers. <laughs> they're like, it's easy. You just got to do input this, input that. It's like Pavlov's. Just do this, do that. And voila, you have a trained, tame dog. James is saying, essentially, you know what? God is more optimistic about your time. And those trainers are about dogs. I mean, that is the optimism of this text. It feels pessimistic. It's realistic. James is saying, you got to honor the tongue. It can destroy. It can heal. Only God can tame it. God says, easy. Easy. I can tame it. But to allow that, we must cry out for like the first step in recovery, we must admit our inability. We must be a realist. As I said, James is a speech realist. He includes himself in the speech problem. We have to admit our need, even as James models for us that in verse 2. We have to admit our need. We stumble. We can't do this on our own. No one can tame their own tongue. We need a new tongue. This is bad news if you're into self-help. It's good news if you're into Jesus. Amen. And that's step one, cry uncle. Step two is this, lay down your arms and ask God to train your new tongue. How so? Well, first, receive his, his words. Be a listener of God's speech. He alone is perfect. I mean, he is the perfect man that James speaks of in verse two, ultimately. Jesus, Peter says there was no deceit found in his mouth. I love that. We are trained in our speech by imitation. Everybody acknowledges that. Scientists acknowledge that. It's also true in scripture. We are trained in speech by who we listen to. By who speaks to us. This means listen to him. We don't read our Bibles to like sort of prove God that we love Him or to prove to others that we're devout. That's not why we're hungry and thirsty 
for the Bible. We're hungry and thirsty for the Bible because of sweet honeycomb. And we want it. And we also want to be under a good use and non-abusive use of words. We want to be shaped by the perfect speech. The Word of God. And by Jesus' speech. And then, this is crucial. Listen to voices in your life that sound like Jesus. People who use their redeemed tongue well. We have limited time in our, in our life. Give that limited time in your ear to voices that are redemptive. What voices, in other words, are training you implicitly today? Why be trained in poisonous speech? Assess the words you receive in a given day, whether it's words you read on a screen, or words you receive through earbuds, or whether it's words that you engage in at work. And just assess them and consider how are these words training my speech? And consider how the Word of God and how godly speakers can serve as a, as a shaping, as a sort of imitation for you, a godly imitation. That's good stuff too. Secondly, repent of your harmful words. But do it in Jesus' name. This means you can go deep and be brutally honest about your speech problems. Our words that harm are hellish. It's, I, I think of when Jesus calls Peter's speech satanic. Do you remember that? Get behind me, Satan. We can name the brutality of words as Christians because our sinful words do not define who we are in Christ. They're ours, so we have to own them. But they do not define us because we are in Christ, and that means we can be brutally honest about them as we ask forgiveness from others. As we ask forgiveness to the Lord, we can be brutally honest. We don't need to sort of justify our words. We know, if we believe Paul the Apostle, and you should, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and therefore your words cannot condemn you if you are in Christ Jesus, because, again, that deadly snake was stamped out on the cross. We know that the, your serpent tongue was stamped out on the cross. That means you can repent more boldly and more deeply and more honestly and turn and release fresh words. That's the other side of repentance. It's, it's fresh, fresh obedience, new life, resurrection speech. Paul would say, walk by the Spirit, which also means speak by the Spirit. Imagine the new creation time, lit on fire by God the Spirit in your life. Prayerfully depend on God to empower and inform your words and your thoughts. This means God is going to have you grow the space in between stimulus and response in your life. You know, unlike track and field where you want to um, shrink the space between stimulus and response, you have the, the gun that goes off and then the shooting off of the whatever they're called. Those that you want to shrink the space between stimulus and response. Pretty much every sport, you want to shrink the space between stimulus and response. When it comes to our speech, we want to grow that space. 
We want to grow that space. So that in that space we can listen. Maybe for the first time in our life we can actually listen. Not hear, listen. James says be quick to listen. Grow the space. Sometimes the new tongue that God gives us is quieter than our old tongue. Sometimes it speaks up more. Sometimes like musicians, we grow to love the rest notes as much as we love the musical notes in our speech. We can ask God in that space to to measure our words. This makes us more prayerful throughout our day. In any conversation, you you can be having a conversation with God as well. This happened to me yesterday, actually. This is kind of the burdens and blessings of being a preacher. You're, you're getting ready to preach on something, so you're thinking about it a lot. And here I am yesterday at a soccer match for one of my children, and I'm walking up to somebody, and I'm thinking, okay, here we go. Woo! Redeem time, Joe. Here we go. How's this going to look? It's a conversation with God, and I would encourage you to have it too. God, what does the redeemed time look like right now? There's a divine conversation in the midst of every conversation, in other words. We could ask this question, Lord, is this the right thing to say? Or is it the right way to say? Or is it the right time to say? In all of this, Jesus is taming her her tongue. See, James would have us respect the power of the tongue and respect our inner powerlessness our inherent powerlessness to tame the tongue. But would that create in us a profound reverence and joy for Jesus, the true word? The true and perfect word is shaping our words into his image. And that's good news. And Lord, we do pray for that. We pray that this searching passage in your word would bear its fruit in our life through redemptive speech. We thank you that the destructive tongue of fire has been relit by your Holy Spirit in new creation so that now we can worship you with our tongue and bless others too. We pray that that would happen increasingly. And Lord, that we would be a church that would extend the welcome of Jesus through our speech. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.